welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is CMOSMD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Dr. Heather Evans. Dr. Evans is currently a professor in the Division of General and Acute Care Surgery and Vice Chair of Clinical Research and Applied Informatics at the Medical University of South Carolina. In addition to her practice of trauma surgery and surgical critical care, she also focuses on minimally invasive general surgery, including laparoscopic hernia repair. Prior to joining MUSC, Dr. Evans served at the University of Washington, where she led a multidisciplinary research team, leveraging mobile health solutions to improve the early diagnosis and treatment of surgical site infections. Dr. Evans' work has been featured on National Public Radio, in the Seattle Times, the Bulletin of American College of Surgeons, as well as on iHeartRadio and Al Jazeera America. She is currently working with the MUSC Center for Telehealth on a new remote wound monitoring program for surgical patients, building on the successful MUSC remote patient monitoring system for people with COVID-19. Dr. Evans, Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. I really enjoy getting to talk about the work and especially with folks that are also on the cutting edge of developing things that are directed at improving care for patients and their own experience. Well, we really appreciate that. And honestly, it is fantastic having you on. You have been a pioneer in this field for a number of years now. Where I wanted to start the conversation, though, I believe from some of my research, you had originally been keen on pursuing the arts in some form, and I think it was creative writing. But I'm so curious, what drew you initially to medicine? Well, I have to say, like, the story is a little more complicated than that. And I thought from a very young age that I wanted to be an eye surgeon. Like, I saw how the body human when I was... I think in kindergarten, you know, it's one of these shows. I, I've tried to look up on YouTube, but I don't know if you can actually find the exact episode that I saw, but they were talking about like really cutting edge, amazing surgery to replace cataracts at the time, you know, replace your lens. And I thought that like, that's what I want to do. So I was determined that I was going to go to medical school when I was really little and some of that also came from the fact that my dad was an MD-PhD. He was a, a scientist at NIH. And growing up, so I was around science all the time and around discovery and this idea of coming up with new mechanisms to describe what actually was happening in the world. So that was part of the conversation when I was a child. And it seemed like an obvious fit to go to medical school. And I had planned out how many years it would take and when I got to high school, I had a really difficult relationship with my chemistry teacher. And I got really frustrated and I just felt like it wasn't maybe the right path. And so when I went to college, my dad also said to me, I don't think you should be pre-med. I think you really need to be a liberal arts major. You need to learn about the world. And I loved writing and I loved music and I loved art. And I had been to Europe and seen amazing things firsthand in museums that really inspired me. And I had taken an art history course through Johns Hopkins CTY, which was their gifted and talented program that was really popular when I was in junior high and high school. And 
I just felt like there was so much there to discover and I was very excited about it. So ironically, you know, new discovery was really in the form of history, looking at, you know, how things happened under the lens of art. And I absolutely loved art history. I, every class I took, I just got so much out of it and I became a much better writer, more critical thinker and able to devour like a large amount of information and memorize dates and locations and happenings and things. And I wrote my thesis on Georgia O'Keeffe and the time that she spent at the University of Virginia, where I went to school. And some of that involves some primary research, special collections library. And so there was a lot of awakening to how to do research and how to really package an idea and write it to become compelling. I was also a Japanese minor, so I didn't want to take Spanish or French. I wanted to do something different. And I went to Japan thinking, oh, maybe I'll, you know, do art history in Japan or somehow become a, you know, American businesswoman in Japan. And that just did not seem possible after I actually was there. I definitely felt like a gaijin and didn't fit into that society at all. And so I came back and said to myself, well, what am I really going to do with my life? You know, I'm not going to be an art historian. I don't want to do art in the dark for the rest of my life. As much as I loved the learning, it just didn't seem like the kind of career I wanted. And I had done an internship at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. And I realized on the other side of it, the, you know, the conservators didn't want anybody to touch the art. They didn't want anybody to interact the art. They wanted it to stay, you know, in a hermetically sealed environment where it would be preserved forever. And I just, I didn't find myself going down either of those paths. So I went back to the drawing board and I said, you know, I was really interested in being a physician at one time. And, you know, my dad has been such an inspiration to me my whole life. And so at that point I was like, just about to start my fourth year. And how am I going to do this? And I managed to you know, start taking my pre-med classes in my senior year of college. And so I had to do a post-bac year, which was the most difficult year of my life, for sure. And so doing that transition from probably right brain to left brain was very painful and hard. But I knew that there was a light at the end of that tunnel, and I was very fortunate to get into one medical school, and it happened to be the University of Rochester. And it was a very holistic place. It was a at the time, it had like the highest average age of medical student of any school. And there was a focus on looking at not just the pathology of the patient, but how that pathology evolved, not just biochemically, but they had this way of looking at things called the biopsychosocial model. And this actually has become very important to me in my career because I think that the patient often gets very lost in our attempt to do the right thing, to be efficient, to be fast, to get to the point, to treat someone effectively. But we don't really consider, you know, all the things that has happened to that person up until that point that has brought them to that moment. And considering that their pathology may have something to do with those experiences and how we treat them can make that experience either better or worse, but it does have an impact. So 
I feel really fortunate that I ended up on this path because it was the perfect place to learn how to be a doctor. And I have always felt a little bit other, a little bit outside, a little bit different. And I've always felt very comfortable there because I've started out from this place of, you know, I'm learning, I'm discovering. And so I think that I'm comfortable there, even though it can be very difficult and challenging and uncomfortable sometimes. But that's probably where all of this started and why I ended up in medicine and why I really love to be an innovator. That's, that's the place that I find, you know, my people. Yeah, I love that. I think it's, it's so fascinating how you're definitely not risk averse because you've come at it from such a different angle of looking at, you know, the world through innovation and how can you change the models that are in place right now. It seems like you've really always been on the forefront of innovation. And when you did go ultimately into becoming a surgeon, you're really looking at surgery from a different lens as well, more of a holistic lens of how can we, you know, make things better, whether it's minimally invasive hernia surgery, which you, you know, were really big into in the in the beginnings, like kind of adopting around 2008 or even using the robot for surgery. I'm curious then what drew you finally to technology and how did you incorporate that first in your practice? Well, I have to say it all goes hand in hand, right? And and in some ways I'm an innovator, and in some ways, I would have to characterize myself as an early adopter. So there are certainly other people that have done minimally invasive operations way before me. But I watched that evolve as even a medical student. So in 97 or 98 was when I was really first in the operating room. And I didn't know that I was going to be a surgeon at that time. I sort of thought I was going to go into obstetrics and it awakened in me, you know, as I was going through my third year of medical school, that I really belonged in a place where I wasn't so many different things. I was really focused on being a proceduralist and I was focused on how I can make the process better, not just for an outcome, but also for the people that are involved doing the operation and the people that are know, being operated on. And I remember thinking about process a lot and watching people and how they talk to patients and someone that made a huge impact on me when I was a third year medical student was my chief resident. And she was one of the very few women that directly trained me really in most of my career, because at that point, there weren't that many women in general surgery. And Anna Seidel sat down on the side of the bed and talked to patients and looked them in their eyes and you know, listened to them and was very clear and very confident. And she was very tall and just had this presence about her that people trusted her and listened to her in a time when that was a little unusual for women to take on that role. And I just, it, it awakened something in me that like, I realized I could do that. You know, you see right. one, you can be one. And I didn't have many other role models like that throughout my training. But I didn't necessarily need them because I saw a lot of that in the men that I worked with, too. And I looked out for people that, like, my first week of medical school, there, Howard Beckman was a family practice doc at, at the University of Rochester. He wrote some really great research on listening to patients and, and the time you have to take to hear people. And he said to us, our first week of medical school, he said, look for the healers. And, I mean, that still resonates with me. I think about that a lot. 
Now, how, what does that have to do with innovation? Well, I mean, we're always trying to figure out how we can reach people. And I think whether it's that you're doing less, bringing on less discomfort, less pain, doing it in a slicker way so that it doesn't mean that you're staying in the hospital, you can go home after your surgery, your pain is less, that your activity level can be higher, that you can get back to work sooner. I mean, all those things are so meaningful and applying technology and applying innovative processes to improve care. It's always been inspirational to me. So when I watched the first wave of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, for example, when we used to have to put the camera and the light cord and all this stuff in a plastic bag. You know, like I've seen the platforms evolve. I've seen how the technology has gotten slicker and streamlined and more sustainable, right? And I've seen then with the adoption of robotics, which was not accessible to me in my previous job because we didn't have a robot. So I was kind of this little island in Seattle where I was the only one doing minimally invasive hernia repair at the public hospital. Whereas across the water, some of the folks over there were doing these really advanced laparoscopic cases. It was a very exciting environment. And so I, I forged some really strong mentee mentorship kind of situation with Andy Wright, who is the head of the Minimally Invasive Fellowship at UW. And he and I are such close friends. And I really just so valued the relationship that he and I had because he awakened me to what was possible and gave me the confidence that I could be this island. You know, I was the only one doing those things over at Harborview. So when I moved to MUSC and I had the chance to adopt the robotic platform, I, I jumped at it. And that has just been such a joy and such a real stretch to my skills because of the things that I can now do. And I'm doing more and more complex hernia operations. And I, I mean, I'm not an innovator. Like people are already doing that stuff, but I'm definitely an early adopter. And I feel like as much as I can, I want to contribute to that early adoption so that we can get it in more of the mainstream because what we can do for patients is really improve the experience that they have. Flip side, I think technology can get in the way. And I think that, you know, you can lose sight of trying to solve the problem because it's fun and we love the mobile phone or we love the robotic platform and you have to maintain some reason and how it really fits into how we care for patients. And if it ever gets in the way and makes it harder for people, then it's not, I mean, obviously that's not worth it. So I think we have to be really deliberate about the choices that we make and be very critical about what technology adoption does to the, to the patient surgeon or doctor patient or you know, doctor-doctor relationship, doctor-to-other provider relationship, there's a lot that stands in our way when we've added this layer of technology. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I have recently started binging on New Amsterdam on Netflix. And I mean, I'll watch a good medical show, okay? I'll, I'll admit to that. And of course, it's very hard for me because I end up being critical about the things that they get wrong. But one of the things that was this theme that they developed was that they were going to get rid of computers and screens in patient care areas. And what 
a disruptor that would be to the work that I do. And I thought about it and, you know, obviously viscerally was like, oh, that's not, no, no way would it ever work. But I watched the storyline play out and I understand the impetus for this theme, right? You know, like there is a problem. I mean, I see it at my dinner table, right? Put your phone away and talk to me. And I do think that at the heart of this is that we all want to be able to have this kind of exchange, this kind of communication, to really listen to each other and hear what's going on in each other's lives. And if there's a screen between us, it's not going to be as effective. And so I took away from that some caution, you know, like with all of these developments, we still really need to maintain that true connection to the people that we care for and care with. Otherwise, the, what's the work? It's not meaning. Absolutely. And Heather, when we think about your innovation and you, I remember like I first met you because of your being a pioneer for mobile health and, and surgery. And you're, I think, well known in, in this space for kind of being an early adopter and an innovator for specifically remote wound monitoring through the Empower Initiative, which I believe you started when you were at University of Washington. Uh, I think it's an amazing story and I think really helped advance the sort of field forward. Love to get maybe the origin stories and for folks who aren't who are unaware, you know, yeah. what is Empower? How did you start and what did you learn from that? You know, the story that I always tell, and thank you, by the way, for those very kind words. The story I always tell is this. I remember sitting in my first office as a attending, very small little closet with a window behind me, and I started getting emails from patients. Now, this is a time when, like, we didn't have a patient portal. That didn't exist. And so I was getting these messages from patients who would occasionally send photographs of their wound. And one of my partners sent me this particularly awful looking wound where the patient had written in the email, is this what this is supposed to look like? And that just stuck with me. I mean, I still have the picture and I've been thinking about it ever since. This is 2007, maybe 2008. And I got my first iPhone in 2007. So if you think about the time that we were living in, the circumstances of our technology, what we were able to do with communications, it was so primitive that a patient really only had email, that we weren't even texting photos at that time. And so it was a profound communication to me, like, we can do this. But we need more than just the photograph. Like, I want to be able to track this over time, and I want to know how it changes. And I want to understand how I'm going to be able to make this better for patients and keep people from getting these infections. But I can't even start to do that if I don't know who has one. And so this is an idea that I had batted around. Eric Van Eaton was one of my partners, and he's been really a transformational figure in EHR development in creating tools for physicians to be able to use the EHR better. He and I talked about this very early on and he was keen on it too. And just to hear him, well, I really respected his ideas in technology and in integrative processing. But it wasn't until probably 2009, I think, I got some funding. I was a K-12 awardee through the University of Washington, through the Comparative Effectiveness Research Program that was funded by PCORI. And Dave Flom was one of my mentors, and he sent me this kid one day. He said, oh, this is medical student. 
been doing some, you know, surgical infections research. I know you're interested in that and, you know, maybe just meet with him and see what he wants to do. So Patrick Sanger came to my office and he said, well, I'm really interested in creating tools in the HR that identify when patients have infections, specifically healthcare associated infections. And I've been working with Paul Pottinger over at the University of Washington, who is the infection control guy there. And, you know, we've created this way to sniff out who has a catheter related bloodstream infection. And I think if I do this again, I'm going to get a spot in the residency program here because that's what I want to do. And I was like, Patrick, oh, let's think much bigger than this. Let's let's do something really crazy. Let's do something really crazy. Let's put this detector in the hands of the patients. Let's get patients to tell us when they have an infection. And he said, oh, that's really interesting. I said, do you think that we could build like an app to give to patients so that they could go home from the hospital and they could take pictures of their wound and they could send it to us and we could monitor what happens over time? And he said, oh, yeah, I could definitely do that. So Patrick's a really weird guy, too. I love Patrick because he was actually an architecture student who Dang. decided to go to medical school. And so Patrick had this unbelievable set of design skills and decided to go into the biomedical informatics program at the University of Washington. And he started out thinking he was going to get a master's, but very soon after starting that, he's like, now nah, I'm going to take the time to get a PhD. So I had the benefit of having Patrick with me for over three years. So Patrick and I worked together for a long time to sort of figure out how we were going to do this. And then we found our team. Then we found some people that actually were doing user-centered design, that were doing biomedical informatics research that had a group of people up and willing to do this kind of stuff within the University of Washington. And we were kind of a skunkworks team in a way that we didn't work with the EHR because we very quickly figured out that in order for us to be innovative and really, really cutting edge, we had to be outside of the system. And I know we're probably going to get into this at some point, but this was really the tension between the stability, security, right. privacy, and zero downtime environment that we live in as medical informaticists that practice medicine versus those of us that really want to push and change and grow and refine and open new ways of communicating with each other. And so that was my first experience when I met Bill Lober at UW that I understood that you have to be a little bit subversive to be able to do this work in the beginning. You know, you have to push these standards and acceptable use and just have to be on the edge of what is allowable to be able to create something that's really different and new. So that was the beginning. What Patrick did first was he interviewed patients that had had wound infections after surgery. And we characterized what the patient experience of having a wound infection was. And we were among the very first to do that. And we documented that it was really tough 
And it wasn't just tough because it was uncomfortable and icky and you had to take care of a wound infection. But the worst part about it was that patients felt like they were not listened to, that they couldn't get to somebody that knew what was wrong with them, that had been a part of their care up until that point, that really understood what a wound infection meant to somebody who had had surgery. And I remember being on the other side of this, even as a resident or maybe even as a medical student, answering the phone and having a patient say to me, something's not right. I don't like the way my wound looks. It's red. There's drainage. It's hot. What should I do? And over the phone, which was the only method of communication we had at the time, remember this is before patient portal. This is before FaceTime. This is before Skype. This is before Zoom. This is before any sort of video conferencing was anything but like a picture in a textbook from when I was in sixth grade when AT&T had made their first video phones. And I thought that was so amazing, but we didn't have a video phone. I mean, nobody had one. So you only had words to describe what was going on. And the only thing that we could say was, well, if you really think there's a problem, you need to come to the ER. That was the only recourse we had as providers. It was the only suggestion we had. And that was so frustrating to me that the only thing we could say was get in your car. Maybe you don't have a car. Or maybe you live two hours away. Like, am I really going to be helpful now? So patients told us this when we interviewed them about the experience of having a wound infection. And it was like the worst part about it was that they just didn't feel cared for. One person even said, I didn't know I had a wound infection until you just asked me about it. And this is like several months later. So clearly there was not just a lack of communication and preparation for what could happen, but there was also a lack of communication on the other side when it was finally happening and people were being treated. So we uncovered all of this dissatisfaction and we uncovered all of this miseducation. I'm not even really sure how to characterize it, but just an utter missing piece in the care of these patients. And, and, you know, as a surgeon, like, I don't want my patient to feel like that at home. I, I certainly don't want them to feel alone and like they can't contact somebody. So that was really the beginning. That was the impetus. That was the justification breaking the rules, really asking patients to give us something that we had never asked them to do before. And so Patrick went on to build these wireframes and we went to Bill and we started talking about it. And I learned so much about user-centered design methodology. And even more so, I think the biggest thing that I learned in that experience was the value of a multi-professional, multidisciplinary, weird ragtag team of people that had different skills, different perspectives and different problems. But at the end of the day, like everybody sitting around that table, whether they were the user experience engineer, the coder, the medical student, the patient, the informaticist, the nurse, like we had all these different brands of people around the table, different life stories, different perspectives, different training, different role on the team, right? Everybody had an experience where they or a loved one had had a wound problem after surgery everybody and everybody had the same concerns that those patients brought up 
And so that really helped guide us. We weren't just surgeons or doctors or nurses sitting there coming up with a treatment plan. We weren't just informaticists or coders or user experience engineers coming up with a strategy. We actually had experience as patients or loved ones of patients. And so I think that that really drove us in the beginning. Now, if I had to be critical of our process, I think, you know, we did underestimate the impact that interviewing just patients who had had wound infections had on how we designed our tool. And I think if I had to do it all over again, I probably should have talked to a lot of patients that never had a wound problem because that's most people. And to be honest with you, we built a tool that worked so wonderfully for people who had a problem, but it wasn't really as helpful or as impactful for people that just went about their way and their wound healed as it was supposed to. And I think if I was going to do it all over again, I would have spent more time thinking about what do those people need? Because we didn't serve them. And I think that when you look at, you know, making a product that's really going to hit the most people and make the most change, you probably need to think about the normal folks a lot and what their process looks like and how to make them feel good about what's happening because they still have some of the same questions like is it supposed to look like this is it supposed to feel like this who do i talk to who's answering the phone who's on the other end of this line with this wound they have all the same questions but they have different needs right they need reassurance they need to go home and say yep my doctor thinks that i'm okay And I think if we had designed the tool to be able to give that kind of immediate feedback in a better way, I think it would have been even more successful. You learn a lot from things that don't work as you intend or failures. And I think that that's probably the biggest message from Empower. That and the idea that, man, it is just really hard to change physician work process. It is just almost impossible to change us and to ask us to do something else when we're being asked to do more and more all the time think we we underestimate even how many times we log in to the hr day and how much time that takes you know there have been studies about that kind of administrative overload that you end up accumulating just the sum total of the minutes that it takes you to get to where you need to be, right? All that transportation time is basically what it is. You know, I got to get to work. I got to get in the car. There is something enjoyable about commuting, but, you know, not always. But all that time it takes to get to where you actually need to be. I think we really have done providers a disservice by asking them to do more and more and integrating less and less. So in the end, Empower is a failure because we couldn't integrate it into the physician's work process. And I think it goes back to that initial choice of being Skunk Works and not working with the EHR folks and not integrating with Epic or Cerner or Allscripts or whatever EHR it is that you're using. So, you know, if you were going to ask me, like, 
what really is where the rubber meets the road and where we're going with all of this stuff. It's that I think that the integration is everything. And the less that you're going to do that's going to get in the way of a person delivering care to somebody else and being able to listen to their problem and be creative about the solution, the less you interfere with that process, the more successful it's going to be. Heather, can I ask you, I mean, let's say something like Empower is integrated with the EHR. I guess one of the other roadblocks we've seen with the adoption of mobile health or digital health solutions is that it, it still does require change management. It still adds something to the clinical workflow. And, you know, we come across yeah. clinicians who might say, well, you know, Heather, I didn't sign up to do this. You know, I wasn't expecting to have to put in this extra effort after discharge to, to check yeah. in and see how incisions are doing when a patient goes home. And I know like people like, like us in this room, you know, we... You know, we're willing to change how we do things because we think it's it's better patient care. But the reality is, as you know better than we do, there's so much more constraints and resources for healthcare. There's nursing shortages and and staff burnout and all that. So, and any thoughts on if we're to make something like mobile health you know viable going forward for the healthcare system? Are any ideas on or suggestions on what should be done differently? Whether that's policy reimbursement or other things that should be done more broadly? Any guidance on, on what people should think about to to well, th- th- thank you for throwing in policy or reimbursement yeah. because I was going down a totally different depressing road, but I would <laughs> say definitely. I think if we learned anything from the experience of the last several years during the pandemic, the reason that we were able to make telehealth such a focus and a real conduit for continuing care was because we changed reimbursement. There is absolutely no question in my mind that there would have been no sustainability whatsoever and no uptick if it hadn't been for that. So I think that the government recognized that and made a very fast move in that direction. Now, the challenge is now we're out of these dire circumstances that led to us sequestering in our homes and reducing in-person clinic visits. And now we've learned that all that is possible, but where does it really fit in to how we care for patients? And how do we make digital health interactions meaningful, safe, effective, and maybe not the same as interactions in person, but when there are particular constraints or preferences, there are scenarios where you can very easily see that those are preferable interactions to in-person interactions. And to be able to integrate that into the care that we deliver and figure out right place, right time, I think that's really where we have to focus because not everyone is going to be open to having a virtual visit. Not every encounter is appropriate to be done virtually. But I can give you scenarios like even to the degree where you would think a cancer diagnosis, you want to talk about a cancer diagnosis on virtual visit. Actually, you could have a virtual tumor board. Actually, you could have a palliative care provider who is unable to be in the same place as the oncologist and the patient's family is in a different city and they all want to have a meeting. And guess what? The only way to do it is like this. That's powerful. That 
brings a degree of specialized care and personalized care and meeting patients where they live, that's the kind of thing that I want to see integrated further in our healthcare. Trying to make everybody have a virtual follow-up visit is never going to happen. But trying to make everybody come back to clinic doesn't work either. I mean, look at the, the recidivism or the, the loss to follow-up rate in emergency general surgery and trauma is incredibly high. Caroline Ranke at Carolina's Medical Center, Atrium Health, did a fantastic study where they compared the patient experience and the provider experience between an in-person follow-up visit and a virtual visit after emergency general surgery, like uh, appendicitis, appendectomy, or lap coli. And they found that there was no concern about safety that there was a very high degree of patient satisfaction and that there was actually a lot of indication that patients preferred it because of its convenience factor for them. And I don't think that we can discount that. I mean, if anybody, all of us have had to go to the physician's office and sit there and wait. To sit and wait in your home or your office at work or your car is so much more acceptable than having to wait in somebody's waiting room after you've driven there and taking your kids to have somebody else watch them and lost a day of work. I mean, it, it's transformed a lot of interactions for patients. And, and I do think that there's a way to make this workable for physicians, too. And the flexibility of being able to see somebody when you have a half an hour in your day, maybe not on your clinic day. I have a good friend, uh, Spahagian Nicolian at OHSU, and he has an entire preoperative virtual clinic sure. for abdominal wall reconstruction. And he, I mean, he even has, you know, follow-up visits, virtual follow-up visits where he gets patients to pull their own drains at home. I think that, that when you really try and meet patients where they need you, the location, the scenario, the emotional need that they have, the kind of care we're able to deliver is really transformative. So I don't know if that really answers the question, but I think that's where we should be going is still seeking out the place where there was an unmet need. There was care that was being missed, whether it was geography or time or space or comfort level. There were patients that we were not getting to. And I do think that there's a way to stretch and reach them now where that where we didn't have that before. And Heather, I know everyone is still learning the, the right way to do this, but I'm curious from what you and, and the team at MUSC have learned about telehealth. Let's maybe focus on on surgical post-op. That's one of your your expertise. A any um, learnings about in terms of how you're educating and supporting surgeons on what the right practice is? Are you providing guidance on, hey, you know what, we should be suggesting like virtual follow-up unless yeah. otherwise like, you know, requested by a patient or are there certain criteria in which you're advocating for more based on a patient situation. And I'm just curious how the group is thinking about, you know, any guidance you may or might not provide at this time to surgeons. There are a handful of procedures that probably don't fit into a virtual follow-up visit. And the criteria would be things like, I need to remove 
sutures that I really okay. need to make a judgment call as to whether or not that's appropriate or maybe there's something that's evolving that I need to see in person and touch. But for the most part, I have basically moved to talking to my patients in pre-op when I'm about to wheel back to the operating room and say, I'm seeing most of my patients virtually as a follow-up visit. Would you be comfortable with that? And I think that when you approach patients like that and you say, I think you would be a good candidate for this and you would be able to see me and we would be able to talk and I would be able to, you know, judge whether or not things are going well. You know, I just had so many patients that were coming back after really uncomplicated, minimally invasive hernia surgery saying, is that it? You're just looking at my wounds and everything's fine. I said, yeah, that's, that's usually how it's supposed to go. Lap coli, lap appy, like all of these bread and butter general surgery cases, there's really nothing to do in person. But there are still patients that would prefer to see me. And I don't have any problem with that. I think one of the things that I found that was really exciting during the pandemic, though, was that when I had virtual visits, they were meaningful. People could talk to me. And we spent more time in conversation than me educating. And I felt like it was a very different experience. And I think there's a lot of value in that. And even now, when I do virtual follow-up visits, I ask very few questions. I just want to know how people are doing. And they tell me. And I feel like there's some kind of connection that you get that way that is different than if someone comes in the office. So I really see that there is some value to it. It's not just a convenience. I think our communication has profoundly changed because we rely so heavily on these kinds of modalities now for our day-to-day -day work. And I think we're better at being online communicators. And that's the same is true for the patients. And during the pandemic, they were so grateful that someone was able to see them in whatever way, shape, or form it was. And I think we all grew very uncomfortably through that time together. And maybe part of what made that so transformative and special to a lot of us that were caring for people during that time was that we were just so hungry to have that conversation and to know that people were okay and that we were going to be able to do something for people in a very scary time. And I think now that we're sort of on the other side of that, we have a great respect for what we can actually achieve without being in the same place. Heather, just being mindful of your time, we're going to flip over to what we call the fast five lightning round. But I do want to say to all of your points there, it sounds like you've learned a ton over this experience of implementing these novel technologies and really getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, what is it like from a workflow perspective? What do patients actually prefer? And how does that interaction work between a physician and a patient? I think that's really wonderful and so insightful for our audience to take away. Um, but just being, again, mindful of your time, let's flip over to the Fast Five. First question we have, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? I don't give books. It's such a personal thing to me. I mean, I, the, the one that comes very top of the list is probably Tree Grows in Brooklyn. I read that a very long time ago. I still love that book. But I read voraciously, but very <laughs> privately. <laughs> I love that. Question two, who is a person, either dead or alive, you'd love to meet? Oh, that's so easy. Georgia O'Keefe, 100%. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? 
I don't want to know what you're thinking. No, thank you. I want to be super fast. I'm I'm a cyclist and I love okay. speed. Yeah. Awesome. Question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? Ooh. Sometimes not operating is the right thing. Mm. And I think, you know, we talk about that, but I really internalize that. Mm. I think, you know, being honest about what you can actually do and whether you can actually improve somebody's life, that's tough. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I think a lot of, maybe a lot of surgeons would disagree with that, but deep down, maybe they all agree as well. Uh, that's great. Last question that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? I want to see my grandfather operate. Boom. Yeah. I mean, he was a surgeon at a time when being a surgeon meant you took care of everybody. You were an obstetrician, you were a gynecologist, you're a pediatric surgeon, you were a general surgeon, you were a little bit crazy, did a lot of things. He was a remarkable human being and I never met him. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. Well, I think you'd make him proud today. <laughs> oh, thank you. This has been so fun. I, I really just relish the time to be able to reflect on all these ideas. You know, you spend so much time thinking and working and researching and writing and grant applying and really focusing on how to get to the next place. You don't think about where you came from. So I, I, I'm grateful for the time. Oh, so true. And we're extremely grateful to have you on. Everyone, thank you, Heather, so much for being on the show today. You can find Heather Evans on Twitter at Heather Evans MD. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient, hosted by Seamless MD. You can follow us on Twitter at Seamless MD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit www.seamless.md. Uh, Heather, Dr. Evans, again, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks, Heather. Thanks, Heather.